yielded two points against Vegas in overtime to keep their playoff dream alive. It is Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks, Jamie Dodd. And my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, here with me as always. You can read Drance's work at The Athletic, of course, as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, that was a fun one last night, a pretty entertaining game. And really, I mean, if you were going to kind of script what a Vegas versus Vancouver game was going to look like that followed pretty close to exactly how you draw it up right I mean Vegas dominated possession for large chunks of the game but the Canucks won the goaltending battle they won the special teams battle and Elias Pettersson did some Elias Pettersson type stuff and they end up getting the two points last night yeah I mean remember we talked about it yesterday where we were talking about the performance against the Avalanche the idea of this Canucks team playing a 60-minute complete controlling game and I was sort of like, yeah, it's got to be Demko, it's got to be the power play, it's got to be the individual effort of somebody to win this game because Vegas is going to control play. They just have too much depth. And I think that basically played out. The power play was the best part of the Canucks' performance last night. Like, this was a really interesting Demko game because it wasn't a stolen win, in my view, no. despite the sh- what the shot totals look like, so much as... The defining characteristic of the matchup last night, in my opinion, was that Vancouver pretty clearly had the edge in net, right? Like, that was a defining characteristic. It looked like Vegas would have to work twice as hard or get twice as lucky as they did on their first two goals to puncture Thatcher Demko as Vancouver would to get to, to get pucks behind Robin Leonard. Now, Robin Leonard's a really great starter. But it was only his second game back from a long injury layoff, and I thought it showed. I didn't think he had his net the way that he usually does when he's, you know, the big panda in there. He struggled significantly, in my view. The rebounds were all over the place, and, you know, his save selections were strange, right? The the Elias Pettersson goal, that was a straight-up softy. The, you know, uh, way that he went down on the Tyler Myers uh, crossbar hit, like, I had no idea what he was doing. And then the Quinn Hughes backhand game winner, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, he was out to lunch. I mean, he just wasn't on his game. He'll find it. Robin Leonard is as consistent as they come. But it was not his night by any means. And you could tell. Like, you could tell just watching the game unfold that Vegas was going to have an issue in net. Um, usually, one thing I've liked about this Canucks team, even as I've been relatively critical of their team quality, One thing I've liked about this Canucks team is I've liked how they've been ruthless pouncing on goaltenders who are vulnerable, right? Like that's been a a characteristic they've had pretty consistently. You think about when Dan Vladar got into the game after Jacob Markstrom's skate incident, for example, and the Canucks quickly just shot pucks on net, pucks on net, got one, and then they score the penalty shot goal to ice that game before it even began. Um, I feel like they've been really good at identifying, you know what the other one is? The Nico Dawes game New Jersey in in Vancouver a couple weeks back on that otherwise disastrous homestand where he lets in that Bo Horvat slapper that just went right through him and the Canucks just come out and go full throttle Tyler Myers nice feed to Tanner Pearson game over game over Dawes pulled from the game right they've been really good at that and one thing I really didn't like about last night's performance from Vancouver was the 
you know, waiting 15 minutes in the third period to get a shot. <laughs> not ideal. I liked the, not ideal. No, and I, and I liked their defensive performance in the third. Like, I actually think Vancouver was a little bit unlucky to have two goals go against them. You know, I don't know that you'd look at their defensive performance in the third and say they got absolutely, like, that Vegas generated whatever they wanted. I actually don't know that Vegas got the types of quality looks that you would have expected them to generate with the stakes being that high, right? Yeah. And, you know, and their skill advantage and their depth advantage. Like, I think Vancouver did a pretty good job locking up in the third period. It's just they kind of got away from playing Boudreaux hockey in some ways, right? The if third, the third the- period, Vegas was obviously all over the puck, but it was never, it never felt like a true house on fire. Oh my goodness, we're no. we're clinging on for dear life here because they're throwing absolutely everything at us. No, and the and the Touche Theodore goals were from outside home plate, right? I mean, yeah. Vancouver, it wasn't, it wasn't tidy, but it wasn't, you know, your first year college dorm room either, right? <laughs> it was, it was somewhere in between there. It's it's. Not like you had a house party. It's like you had a buddy over to watch a game. Like, yeah, you got to spend five minutes tidying it up, but that's not a big deal. No one's going to yell at you. So, you know, I felt like the Canucks defensively played the third period well. It's just that if they put Leonard under some duress, it, it felt like they were going to get to him, and that's exactly what happened in overtime. Um, so you sort of come away from this game, and it's another one of those ink blotter Rorschach Canucks games like you could see whatever you wanted to see in that game if you're one of those Canucks fans watching and thinking this is a team of destiny or or maybe you're not quite team of destiny they're going to make the playoffs they can do this Bruce uh you know like Bruce there it is yeah maybe you're not quite that level of fan but maybe you're just like They've played so well under Boudreaux that with a tweak or two, they could be back next season. Just run it back. They've got the ingredients, right? Maybe you're one of those one of those fans. If you were are one of those types of fans, you had, you know, what you wanted to see. You had Elias Pettersson absolutely take over a period, right? Make like uh the guy in um what's the second Indiana Jones movie called? Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom. Yeah, he like reached into Vegas's chest and just pulled their heart out, right? That was Elias Pettersson in the second period of the Canucks game last night. You had Thatcher Demko clearly giving the Canucks a decisive edge in net, and you had a power play that was as good as it's looked all season, right? The Canucks power play has been really good for most of the year. It's been particularly good for about 50 games now, but I thought last night was the best game that they've had all season. We'll, we'll get into it in a little bit. But I just want to say, you, you could look at those things and say, those are the ingredients that can drive the Canucks, if not to the playoffs this year, then to the playoffs next year. They're close. If you're you know closer to my view of this team, right, which is that serious work needs to be done and that their performance, at least their record, under Boudreaux is likely to prove rather ephemeral uh, if you were to try to run it back. You could see that too. You could see the first period, which was a dog's breakfast with Thatcher Demko really being the reason they got out of that period level, despite, you know, the early power play goal. Um, And you'd look at the third period and say, man, they played well for 20 minutes. They played well for 20 minutes. Like this is not a team that can hang with a team like the Golden Knights. So that was there too. Um, You could see whatever you wanted to see in that game, which is sort of par for the course. 
uh, for this maddening, befuddling Canucks squad. Well, it really does feel like I, I almost feel in a way like we're back to square one, like in the preseason where where I am, at least kind of trying to evaluate this team. And that's despite all of the ups and downs and the Travis Green, the end of the Travis Green and the Jim Benning era, the arrival of Bruce Boudreaux, you know, Patterson's slow start. But I, I look at that game last night and, you know, as you said, they got absolutely dominated in terms of puck possession, but they you know, decisively win the goaltending battle, even though it wasn't one of Thatcher Demko's top 10 performances of the year. They still decisively won the goaltending battle, decisively won special teams, because as you said, their power play has been clicking really consistently for a while now, and the penalty kill has rounded into form two recently. So they decisively won the special teams battle. And then they have game-breaking talent. And in that second period, it was Elias Pettersson. And we had this text come in, from Susan, what did you think of the Pedersen pass to Richardson last night? And, uh, you know, the pass was exceptional, but I think the thing that stood out more than anything else was the read on the play, right, to to intercept the pass, uh, you know, not even just to intercept it, but as I said, to read and see that it was going to happen and make the play to jump the lane and get the pass and get going the other way. And then the pass to Richardson for the tap-in was excellent as well, but that was oh, kind brilliant. of – sorry. It was brilliant. It was oh, brilliant, brilliant from yeah. Patterson. Uh, it was the type of anticipatory play that I don't think you see consistently from uh, more than about 10 other guys in the league. And Pedersen's one of them, right? And we're seeing it more and more. And I wonder how much being entrusted to close games and play on the penalty kill has empowered him to jump those lanes even more aggressively than he has in the past. Um, I, I bet you there is some sort of correlation there. Because I think we're seeing that type of assertiveness from him more and more. But I'm glad you isolated that play. It was just brilliant. Oh, it was it was exceptional. That was like an exclamation point. I, I don't want to say on his whole season, right, or, or this stretch he's on, but certainly of his brilliant game last night. It was just that kind of encapsulated in one play all of the reasons to, you know, rest your hopes as a franchise on Elias Pedersen. As you said, very, very rare combination of skills uh, that he showed there to help break the game open for the Canucks. But, you know, if again, if you were to ask me preseason, okay, what what's this team's profile going to be like? I would have said, you know, probably mediocre or struggles to control play at five on five, especially against really good teams. But has a shot because of goaltending, special teams, uh, and special talent like Elias Pettersson. And and we're right back there, and we saw it again last night, which is just kind of a bonkers place to be, I think, given everything that has happened this year. But I, I do kind of want to zoom in on Elias Pettersson a little bit more because to me, you know, we, we can talk a little bit about how last night's results affected the playoff race, but if we're talking long-term for this team, really Elias Pettersson he is the story for me. And, you know, we've all kind of heard the stats uh, of this latest run from him, but it's 42 points in his last 35 games. You know, his points per 60 at even strength is at 2.5, which would be a career high over a full season for him. Again, that's in this last 35 games. You know, plus he's killing penalties. Plus he's demonstrating that two-way defensive ability uh, that we've seen from him in the past. And I, I really just look at this and I kind of think, is this – is this the best stretch we have seen from Elias Pettersson? Like, the only other one that comes to mind is kind of the first half of his rookie year, and I mean the first 10 games, right, where he scores 10 goals and he just looks like an absolute phenom, right? That comes to mind. But when you consider the fact that he's killing penalties, and as you said, you know, he's being asked to close out games, he's really embracing that defensive responsibility, I, I legitimately think this might be the best version of Elias Pettersson that we've seen uh, in a Canucks uniform so far. I'm going to disagree with you. I think the best version of Elias Pettersson we've seen in a Canucks uniform was 
almost the entirety of the 2019-20 season. It was sure. the second year. I know the first year the, the first year felt more electric because we saw more of the one-timer goals and we saw more of those rush finishes that just cause your jaw to hit the floor, like unhinge, like a like a Tyrannosaurus Rex and just boom, hit the floor. But the next year on that lotto line with JT Miller and Besser, I thought Pedersen found quieter ways to produce the same number of offense, even though teams were not permitting him and were game planning to prevent him from having a head of speed, uh, head of steam on the rush. Like he had to figure out new ways to score that season. Teams were completely cheating on his one timer on the power play. They were on top of him, like laying the body when he didn't have the puck, just skating up ice. They were all over Elias Pettersson that season. And he figured out how to produce offense by simply being disciplined and going to the net front. And it was such an impressive thing, particularly from a player who, you know, weighs less than 190 pounds, right? Um, to see them do that and battle at that level consistently and then carry it over and be a point-per-game guy in the playoffs. For me, that stretch was like core of steel, future elite player stretch. I came out of that season thinking this guy has a real shot to be, you know, maybe not one of the great players in this league, but potentially one of the great winners in this league just because of the hunger evidenced in the way that he played. So for me, that that remains more impressive. He was a better play driver that season too than he has been even over this 45-game stretch. And the other thing I'd note is his five-on-five scoring was higher that season. You know, even in the 33-game stretch that you're talking about, um, you know, with the 45 points, only 18 of them have come at five on five, right? To, to put that in perspective, where no one's talking about Connor Garland's great stretch, in fact, quite the opposite. He's got 17 five on five points over the, over the, same, over the same segment of games to 18 from Pedersen, right? So it's not, that this to me has not been as dominant as that, but I think it's felt like a relief. It's felt like an exhalation, considering how his first 25 games played out just to see him get close to that level again and to look like the same player again, I almost feel like it's been more meaningful for Canucks fans. But, but for me, you know, that 1920 season, like that's Pedersen as an elite player. And this season he's been very close to that in stretches, but he has not overall been an elite player this year. He's been, you know, he's sort of, it's a tale of two seasons well, for him, yeah. just like it's a tale of two seasons for this entire team. Uh, but even even the back stretch of it, I would say, has not been, you know, top 10 player in the NHL level. It's been like top 20, which is, you know, don't get me wrong, phenomenal, <laughs> not particularly bad. from a 23 year old player. But I, I do think there's a level that Pedersen has hit in the past that I expect he will not just hit again, but sustain for many years. Um, that that I still don't think he's quite gotten into this season. And, and I do partly think, too, he's not going to get into until he's got the sort of defense core that can hit him in stride on the rush, right? Like, I don't think there – I think there's work to be done around him to put him into a position to be that effective again, too. So – uh, look, you're right. His second season was absolutely sensational. One of the things that pushes this stretch a little bit closer for it to me is the fact that he's killing penalties. And I know that's a recent addition and there's still a small sample size there. But the fact that he's killing penalties and doing it really effectively does help bridge the gap 
a little bit for me, but even, you know, the way you lay it out there, kind of the difference between a top 10 and a top 20 player, I think that's a useful kind of frame to think about it, right? Like in some ways, when you and I are debating this stretch versus his second season, we're, we're splitting hairs pretty fine here, right? Because any way you slice it, he's having an absolutely elite impact over his last 35 games. And, you know, for me, we always, with Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, with this team in general, right? The the talking point has always been about hope for the future and the growth and the potential. But I look at Elias Pettersson right now, and look, of course there are still areas he can improve, and he can get stronger. And as you said, the environment of the team around him can improve, and that can help his production. But I also look what he's doing right now, and I feel like we're seeing, if not the fully actualized version of Elias Pettersson, we're seeing him play at a level that if he plateaued here and was able to do this consistently over 82-game stretches year in, year out – I mean, you don't have to think about, oh, the future and what's the potential anymore, right? You have your foundational franchise player doing franchise player things right now from Elias Pettersson. Like, and it's a wild thing. It's a wild spot for me to be in given the concerns raised about his game early in the season. And I was always on team, he'll figure it out. But now I feel like not only has he kind of reassured me about those concerns, I actually feel like we're getting we're we're even closer, and I'm almost more impressed with Elias Pettersson uh, than I was coming into the year, which is not something I thought I would be saying, you know, around December or early January. But at this point, for me, you know, he's checking every box, right, with production, helping on the power play, or a big part of the power play, I shouldn't just say helping, uh, killing penalties, two way impact. He's checking all of those boxes. And we're kind of at the place where the only thing I need to see now from Elias Pettersson is, okay, can you do this? for a full season and then another season after that and another season after that. But just in terms of the actual level, the actual game to game impact, again, always there's always room for marginal improvements, but if this is the plateau Elias Pettersson gets to, that's still an incredible incredible boon for the Canucks. I mean, they need Elias Pettersson to be the reason they win games. Period, right? Um going back to his commentary in the summer, right? Which was uh, I want to be in a situation where I can win. Well, you're always going to be a seven to ten million dollar player now. So the reason that a team wins or not is on you. Yeah. Right. Like it's on you, man. And and last and night he was probably the number one reason uh, they won the game for most of the last twenty games. I mean, you know, him and Demko and J T. Miller sort of trading the mantle. <laughs> you know, it's just like the the belt really just should go between those three. Um, and, and this team needs those types of individual efforts to win. I mean, they do. They, they do. They don't have that structural integrity as a team that they can fall back on. I mean, last night was a really good example. With one of Pedersen or JT Miller on the ice, right, the Canucks were outshot 20-28 to 28 at 5-on-5, five five, which is not great. But with one of Brad Richardson or Yuho Lamico on the ice – and granted, there's going to be some noise here, right? Because I'm not separating like out any shifts that they had together or if they got caught on a change. But with Yuho Lamico and Brad Richardson on the ice, that total was a 6-14, to 14, right? Which is really not great. Right. And, you know, I, again, I think underscores the work to do. I, I think this team's now had so much success under Boudreaux and goes back to the sort of uh, difficulty in seeing this team clearly. I think it would be tempting to look at their performance this season and just say the, the coaching change fixed it and they're fine. They're fine. They're good to go. They just need some tweaks. They're not that far off. And yet I, I really don't believe that for, for a variety of reasons. One is their five on five game and their defensive play 
remain troubling to me. Um, the fact is, is that since the coaching change, their stellar record is driven by, you know, for me, two primary factors. One is their goaltending. They've had 930 goaltending at five on five. That's the second best in the league during that stretch, just behind the Colorado Avalanche. And over the course of the full season, they've been number one. Teams with the best five-on-five goaltending in the league almost never miss the playoffs. It's actually, like, hard to do. If you're sledding downhill with elite, elite goaltending the way the Canucks have, you better be really good because you can't count on that level of of saves year after year after year. You need to be able to take advantage of that by by leaning on the sort of team structure that I, I just don't see this team having. The other reason, the other reason is oh there's actually two more well I'll, I'll bundle them together special teams is the other one the penalty kills improvement particularly in the third iteration under Bradshaw has been nothing short of spectacular and whatever happens on the Boudreaux front I do think this club's going to need to to ask some really hard questions about like what did Shaw do how did this work how did you make it work? And and I think they've got to find a way to retain the guy too. I, I mean, I don't know his contract status. I don't know if he's on a one-year deal, but clearly keeping him is crucial because the impact that he had, like I used to make fun of the idea that Bradshaw would like fix everything <laughs> last summer. There was like this idea, like, don't worry about the defense. Bradshaw's going to level up everybody. I thought that was just like, man, the guy's not the Messiah. And now I'm looking at his his work on the penalty kill, and I'm like, oh man, I might have had that he? wrong. Yeah, he or might is be he the messiah. He might be. I mean, looking looking through some of the underlying metrics and the way that the Canucks PK is trending, it's nothing short of 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 spectacular. Especially when you consider, you know, this club's lack of really sturdy defensive personnel, in my opinion. Right? Like, I still do, I still think they're succeeding in spite of their roster construction four on five, as opposed to you know, having the types of pieces that are going to help drive that. And it's not just goaltending. It's not just that they're, yeah. you know, getting 900, say, percentage goaltending and shorthanded. They're legitimately preventing things, and I love to see it. So that's a big part. And then the power play. Now, since the coaching change, the Canucks have had the number one shooting percentage on the power play, or, or sorry, four on five in the NHL, right? Number one, 18.5%. And for me, that's served to disguise... Now, and don't get me wrong, the Canucks power play is still really good, really good. By, mo- by almost any metric, you prefer top 10, right? They're, they're deservingly where they should be, which is in the top 10 in the league. You know, all season, even when they were really bad on the power play in the first 20 games of the year, Jamie, right? I kept saying, like, this power play is going to be fine. They're a sleeping beast. Like, they're, you know, they're going to be good, and they have been. They, they've been really good, in fact. They've been, you know, top five in goals for rate since the coaching change. But a lot of the success that's got them up to the elite in the NHL over the past 50 games has been based off of this 18.5 shooting percentage. Now, obviously we know and we talk a lot about the Canucks having excellent finishing talent, right? You'd expect, and and for five on four, you often see teams sustain an elevated shooting percentage over you know games and games, or years and years even. But top five is still an extreme that teams do not tend to do year after year after year right over a large enough sample you'll see differences in shooting talent between the obvious teams you'd expect and the obvious teams you wouldn't but like let me put this into context over the last three seasons there have been 13 different teams in the top five um 
by power play shooting percentage. Right. Right? So it's like, it's not like, it's it's literally a hodgepodge. It's like Arizona has one entry, Dallas, Minnesota, Vancouver, St. Louis, New York, Nashville, like Florida. Like it's literally pick name out of a hat. And, and sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And it's the same thing that goes with uh, save percentage. Now we, we got a useful text in, by the way, I want to, I want to quickly read out. Uh, ephemeral sim, sy- synonyms <laughs> from, a, from a helpful thesaurus listening to our program. Transient, fleeting, short-lived, momentary, right? Yeah. So, uh, again, if you're betting on a team that's going to sustain the success that they've had under Boudreaux, what you want to be betting on are the things that are not ephemeral, transient, fleeting, short-lived, or momentary. You want to be betting on the things that are consistent. And the things that teams tend to do that they can sustain are controlling play, controlling games five on five. That's the reason I I prize that so heavily, weighed it so heavily in analyzing teams. If you're number one in power play shooting percentage and number two in, in save percentage, even though you have the talent that that makes sense in your mind's eye, you can't count on that level of performance. And if that level of performance isn't getting you from being like the third best team to the first best team, right? Like it's one thing if it's Colorado riding the percentages, right? And you're like, okay, with the percentages, they look like a complete, you know, buzzsaw uh, world eater. But without them, they're just one of the best teams in the league. Like that's fine. That's not what you're concerned about. But if those bounces, if you're if you're running downhill with both of that, the wind at your back from both of those causes, and it just gets you to the top 10 over a 48 game sample, well, if those just go down a tick, just a tick, you're going to be in real trouble next season. And and this is like the most important conversation around this team for me because if this club tries to double down and just tweak around the edges with this roster and run it back next season with Boudreaux and hopes that the last 50 games are more telling of this club's true talent than the full picture of the 73 they've played to this point, oh boy. Oh boy, I think they're going to be in for a rude awakening. I want to continue that conversation about, okay, what what can the stretch under Bruce Boudreaux tell us about the true talent, the true level of this Canucks team? I want to continue that conversation on the other side. We'll do a, a playoff picture update as well after the results around the league last night. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at Dunbar Lumber. Dot com. I don't think I've called it Dunbar Lumbar for a long time. I'm really, really proud of myself Nailing for it. that one, Drance. Yeah. A uh, Pedersen-like streak <laughs> for Jamie Dunn. Right. That's right. A big turnaround for me. Uh, lots of good texts coming in about Elias Pedersen. We'll read some of those on the other side as well. Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please, if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review as well. Lots more coming up on the other side. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks final segment of the show. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drance here. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca, 650-650. Keep your texts coming in. 
Drancer, it was definitely a, a good news, bad news situation for the Canucks in terms of their playoff chase, their their miracle attempt at a playoff appearance down the stretch this year. Because, of course, you get the two points against a team you're chasing. You feel pretty good about that. But you had the chance to do it in regulation and deny Vegas a point. Couldn't hold on to do that. And on the out-of-town scoreboard, both L.A. and Dallas win in regulation. So at the end of the night... The Canucks still six points back of the two teams um, occupying those final playoff spots in the Western Conference. Yeah, and I mean, good text came in about the idea that, in fact, the Canucks didn't really, once Drance gets to his point about the regulation wins, says Tim in Vancouver, who's clearly (laughs) heard me either on Czech TV or on the VanCast earlier today. One thing I want to point out is in the unlikely scenario where Vancouver goes 8-0, 7-0-1, 8-0, 7-0-1, or 6-0-2, or in the mix to make the playoffs. The regulation wins will have to be almost in Vancouver's favor over the other teams. It's incredibly unlikely they go 7-1 and and miss the playoffs because five of those wins are in overtime. Canucks should just take over the tiebreaker simply as a result of the unlikely 11-game win streak. And that's true, but from today's vantage point, we have to break it down with just where we are, not the hypothetical of, well, when the Canucks win 7-0-1, go 7-0-1, the, the, reg, the tiebreaker won't matter. The fact is, is that they were tied with the Kings in regulation wins, and they were up 4-2 against the Vegas Golden Knights, and they squandered that lead. And as such, LA now has more regulation wins, meaning that as they wake up today, instead of being six points back of the Kings the way that they were, although I think the ROW, so the Kings already had uh, the tiebreaker, but the first tiebreaker they were tied in, the fact is is that even though they were the fact is that they're now they're still seven points back of the kings as we sit today six back of dallas who gained a point toward having the second tiebreaker with their regulation victory over the tampa bay lightning and you know for all their good work against vegas pummeling them 5-1 last week and you know i mean having a late lead and ultimately winning in overtime last night they only net two points gained over the Kings across a, you know, triple header in early April uh, in which they got five of six possible points. Like they only get two net points out of that. So just goes to show you again, how hard it is to make up ground in this league, right? How difficult it can be. Um, One thing, and I, I brought this up earlier this week, but I do want to talk about it because I will admit to keeping an eye on the Clippers Timberwolves play-in game last night, (laughs) even as the Canucks were uh, playing, holding the lead in the third period. And the drama in Minnesota as the Timberwolves went on a 21 to five run late to take over a game in which they'd been rather thoroughly outplayed, getting better once their best player got, you know, kicked out of the game for foul trouble. Um, The celebrations in Minnesota were phenomenal. And in a world where the NHL had the same playoff format as the NBA, we'd be shaping up to get a Canucks-Vegas play-in game, which, who doesn't want that? That would be exceptional. I mean, Who doesn't want that? The atmosphere last night, and I wasn't at the game, I was just watching on TV, but I thought, from my vantage point, the atmosphere last night felt exceptional, right? And obviously, if it was a true play-in game, like, that's just, you know, last night is a game we've seen a million times before, right? Where it's a a late-season meeting between two teams fighting for the same playoff spot. But if you have an actual, you know, loser-go-home, winner-advances match between those two teams, or game, I should say, I'm talking like a wrestling promoter now, uh, loser-lose-down match, but if you have an actual elimination game between those two teams, I mean, it just takes it to a completely different level 
could you imagine the stakes too for like Boston and Tampa Bay? Like that Tampa Bay loss in Dallas meant basically nothing, right? I mean, whatever, who cares? Tampa Bay didn't even look like they were that interested, to be totally honest with you, right? <laughs> but in a world in a world where they were would have to face a playing game, right? That loss would increase significantly the chances that they'd have to face uh, Washington, for example, or Pittsburgh in a play-in game. And if they were to lose that game, face the prospect of another play-in game against the New York Islanders. Like, oh my goodness, the drama, even in the Eastern Conference, which hasn't had drama for months, between Pittsburgh and Washington right now and Boston and Tampa Bay, would be thrilling. Thrilling. And then in the West, same thing, right? You'd have the LA, the LA Vegas chase would take on this totally different level of stakes. You know, the, the Winnipeg, fending off Winnipeg would feel more existential and and you'd be looking at like a nashville dallas and then a loser of that plays the winner of a vegas vancouver playing game um for me it's a no-brainer and and in particular i think the canucks are a really good example of why the nhl could use this particularly where the sta- the way the standings are designed right now where it's so hard to gain ground like you you the canucks season was basically lost in the first 25 games they've been incredible since and are still extraordinarily unlikely to make the playoffs. And it's just like, I mean, why? It feels like this team over the last 50 games has done enough. Like, I may not think they're good, but they've done enough, certainly, that it feels like they should have one last chance, one loser goes home cage <laughs> match to, to channel commissioner Jamie Dodd here um, to, to make the playoffs. It would just, it would be good for everybody. I don't see who loses in this equation. Like, what? I don't see... I don't see the downside at all, to be totally honest. With you. It feels like it feels like they should have something to play for, right? Because of what they've done over the last stretch. And this Canucks season is kind of, I think, gonna go down, certainly for me, and I think for a lot of people here in Vancouver, as like the textbook example. When when we all say, Oh, it's so hard to make up ground in the NHL, right? And you know, Elliot Friedman's American Thanksgiving stat about teams that are four points out or whatever, when we talk about just how incredibly hard it is to recover from a slow start. I think this is going to be the go-to example, right? Because you can have this stretch and you can be so hot for so long. And I know there's been stumbles even in the Bruce Boudreaux era, but you can play so well for so long. And if you dig yourself that kind of hole, ultimately it's probably not going to matter. Uh, Jordan texts in, does the salary cap count for a play-in game? Yeah. A whole new avenue for LTIR arguments could open up I don't, with a play-in game. I don't know game. that the salary cap counted last night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm surprised. Uh, well, if they won, maybe uh, Mark Stone would have had a you know $9 million over the cap shirt or whatever at the podium. Uh, um, the Vegas Golden Knights. The Vegas Golden Knights played last night with seven players on LTI, an NHL record since the uh, creation of of the cap friendly website capfriendly.com it's a record in the in the nine, seven years since capfriendly.com has been managing the books and yet it was the Vancouver Canucks who played the game with a 3.3 million dollar penalty <laughs> yes. on their books for cap circumvention and the one that riddle I, me that one yeah. make, make that one make sense to Look, me the the Luanga recapture is never ever going to make uh, a lick of sense no. but anyways um the thing about a play in tournament as well from the NHL perspective and the reason why I do think I think it's a possibility, as kind of tradition-bound and short-sighted as the NHL can be so often, the play-in tournament does align 
with one of their, I don't know about explicitly stated goals, but certainly one of their most obvious goals, which is to keep as many fan bases invested in the regular season for as long as possible, right? Like that totally. is, that's the reason behind the point system that we have. And, and the reason why, you know, the as much as three-point games versus two-point games drive a lot of us nuts, the NHL doesn't want to get rid of it because it helps keep teams in with a shot, or at least gives the illusion that they're in with a shot later into the season. And so the play-in tournament accomplishes that better than just about anything you could do, right? Like, as you said, you just think about the stakes. Well, it makes that it all meaningful. These, yeah, exactly. You think about all the stakes that these extra games would have uh, down the stretch, or, or I should say the extra stakes that a lot of these games that are playing down the stretch would have. To me, I mean, that checks a huge box for the NHL. Now, I imagine there would be, you know, certainly GMs and probably owners who would look at this and say, well, hold on a second. You know, I'm so used to aiming to clear the eighth place bar. And if I'm a seventh or eighth place team, I don't want to have my playoff revenue potentially impacted by losing a one game uh, play in. But I think the benefits from a league wide perspective outweigh that. And I think certainly at the top level, and I think now that the NBA is doing it and there's kind of a proof of concept and that it's working, the NHL, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if it's something that they pursue for those reasons. Well, if it happens, it'll have to be driven by owners specifically yeah right I, I don't think there's any appetite among the league itself uh to install such a system um but you know for me it, it would make sense and don't forget don't forget jamie when they proposed the play-in format when the nhl proposed the play-in format to the board of governors back during the 2020 pause right so the play-in format was a one-year exigency to be played in a bubble um or or a western fa or a phase four secure zone um and there was a memo drafted and signed by Bill Daly arguing for the tournament and said that basically, basically the play-in mechanism that they created was more relevant than hosting the balance of the regular season because by the time you get to the last 15% of the, of the NHL regular season or every game after game 69 or, or thereabouts, which is where the NHL paused in March of 2020, um, by the time you get there, there's so many teams that are playing young players and that, in fact, what happens over the balance of those 13 games, the NHL itself said isn't necessarily instructive in terms of defining team quality. That, that's an NHL internal document made that argument. And yet we're not going to do a play-in game to try and add something to solve that problem of, of 13 to 15% of the season being by the NHL's own admission, not that telling, not that, not that revealing in terms of who's good, who's not good. It, it, it baffles me. It baffles me that this is something that the league itself wouldn't be driving toward. And lots of uh, text disagreeing coming in. This one says, uh, A, I'd be pretty pissed to have a seven-game series taken away if you were the better team over 82. If you can't get in the playoffs in a league where 50% make it, you don't deserve another chance. Another one says, if a 10 seed can make the playoffs over an 8 seed, why don't we just simulate the season on the latest NHL game and strip straight to the playoff games? Dumb idea. I don't like it. And I think Kind of the root of disagreement that you know that I have with a lot of people who react negatively to the idea is I think there's this perception that finishing seventh or eighth in your conference is like a really meaningful accomplishment. You know what I mean? And yeah, that really not. just stinks. It's devaluing exactly. That. Like like oh, the eighth place team is dramatically better than the ninth place team, and that's just not the case. And look, if you're the seventh or eighth seed and you don't like that your your season's on the line in a one game playoff, finish higher than that. Finish six. Win your division. And then you won't have to worry be about better. it. That's the solution. <laughs> yeah, be better. But like, that's ultimately I'm a, I'm a, it. I agree. And, and it's just yeah. I, I don't I don't think we have to 
you know, we, we don't have to be so worried about devaluing finishing seventh or eighth in your conference. It's, it's not that impressive. Like, it, it's just it's the bar for all teams should be higher. And that's one of the reasons I like it. It's not just that it gives uh, important stakes to the guy, the, the teams fighting for, you know, 10th and 9th place. It all it's also re- makes seeding up above that really important, right? If you're the fifth or the sixth place team, you are desperately clawing to avoid that play in game. So I think it, it it has a lot to speak to it. Uh, this one comes in. Gerp from Surrey says the play-in is the perfect way to get teams, more teams involved in the race. It's going to be way more competitive. The NBA has mastered it. And again, I just think there's no reason we have to act like finishing seventh or eighth in your conference is this massive accomplishment that needs to be protected, right? Yeah. Well, and so two other quick points on this. One is uh, John Landgraf was the president of the uh, of FX. Right. And FX started launching all those like mini series, like the mini seriesization of television. Instead of doing five big shows, you could get a star signed on for four months, do like a really high class mini series, like like True Detective or something. Right. Uh, That that was HBO, but in that mold and be like something that people talked about uh, around the water cooler, capture attention, you know. That's what the play-in series does. It it adds like a mini series element, a separate high-profile event into the NHL season, which, you know, much like the Stadium Series or the Heritage Classic, you know, can help draw eyeballs from outside the usual milieu of of NHL fandom, and that's good for the game. The last part is the play-in tournament actually increases the value of the 82 game season because it gives the teams that finish in the top three in their division and in particular both division winners an additional advantage by the time they face their opponent at home to begin the playoffs that opponent will have played at least one and maybe two additional games while the other team has had two or three days off to rest up and prepare for the playoffs so they're coming in facing a team that's probably had to travel significantly relatively late before the game, and they get to host this celebration to open the playoffs against a fatigued team. And as we've talked about with three and fours and back-to-backs, I mean, if you get the 10th seeded team, they've had to win two games. They've had to win twice. So you're playing this team that's playing their third and four nights probably, or their or their you know third and fifth, uh, third game and five nights, and you've had three or four days off you're completely rested and you you get this huge advantage to open the playoffs which is you know essentially a slightly easier win in the very first game and probably in the second game too before the other team's going to catch their wind um this would actually add value and heft to regular season success which is just another reason why, for me, it's a no-brainer. Yeah, and John and Victoria text in, uh, you just argued that if you don't want to be the 7th or 8th seed in a division and have to play uh, in this play-in tournament, then play better and finish 5th or 6th. The same argument holds true if you're the ninth or 10th place team, play better and you don't have to worry about making the play-in tournament. That's true, but I would rather reward teams 1 through 6, right, for the reasons we're we're outlining here, because you avoid the play-in tournament, and if you're one of the top two seeds, you get a, uh, you know, a worn down opponent in the first round. I would rather reward those teams, the teams that have accomplished more in the 82 game regular season than protect the seventh or eighth place teams. Right. And then you have the added bonus of creating all of this excitement, creating a perfect made for TV event, uh, making all the late season, regular season games a lot more meaningful. So you have a lot of positive benefits plus, yeah, okay. It's tough for the seventh and eighth seeds, but it actually rewards the teams higher up the standing. So that's why 
I have no problem with it whatsoever. Uh, this one from LD. People who text in here clearly do not watch the NBA. The play-in tournament is awesome. If you finish between 7 and 10, you aren't that good anyway, and the drama is so much fun. Also, the better teams get a few days break, which is better for the overall product. That's from LD. And then this one uh, says, you're getting a little too worked up over a tournament that will not ever happen. And to that, I say, welcome to sports radio. <laughs> getting worked up over hypotheticals. That's what we specialize in here. <laughs> I mean, I mean... <laughs> Why are you getting so worked up over something that'll never happen? Talk more about the Canucks playoff chances. <laughs> is that is that where we're is that is that where we're oh, at? Oh dear. Oh dear. Very good, Drancer. Ah, uh, this one from Nelson and Kelowna. Typical Canucks fans wanting a play in playoff round just because they won't admit we suck. We need an army. That's from Nelson and Kelowna. And <laughs> I, I mean, isn't this isn't this us leading the charge though, Jamie? Yeah, it's not I don't think it's 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 not about rewarding the Canucks for this season, right? It's just it would be more entertaining for the NHL overall. I don't I don't know. Whatever. Well, but well, I'm not admitting the Canucks aren't good enough. <laughs> yeah. That's that's where we're at. Classic. Okay. Classic. We've, re- we, we, we've really gotten silly toward the end of this Canucks hour, which I love. Yes. Well, this is Canucks happy hour now. Uh, Bob in Nanaimo says, I grew up with 16 of 21 making the playoffs, which at the time we regularly referred to as the best playoffs in sports. And now we're <laughs> babies if we want more than half the teams to make it. I thought the bubble playoffs were the best format they've ever done. I would be over the moon to see that exact format made permanent. That's a great point about the 16 Killed of 21 it. teams. Like a great point. It's not as if the this isn't Major League Baseball, right? Where winning your division, winning the pennant, and, and the importance of the regular season has for so long held this really kind of prestigious place in the game. Like, the playoffs has always been a pretty low bar in the NHL. You're not exactly sullying it by slightly expanding the potential field of teams. No, not at all. Uh, and you're not even expanding it. Like, you're creating right. a separate play-in device. The playoffs will still be 16. Um, you know, yes, there's a chance that you can win the Cup with 18 wins as opposed to 16, but we already did that in 2020 and it was awesome. We all loved it. Yeah. Um, and what a know, great story I, that would be. Can you imagine like as much as people are complaining about the oh, possibility of a 10th seed, the first 10th seed to go to the conference finals, right? Like that would be an incredible, incredible story. Amazing. And, and they'd probably have some wild tale about how they got in just like the yeah. Canucks, right? I mean, um, for me, for me, it's a no-brainer. It'd be fun games. And I also love single-game elimination hockey. Like, so much of the playoffs for me is just rooting for Game 7s. So I get to watch that, like, heart-pumping right. single-game elimination hockey where every play seems so consequential. Um, it feels larger than life. Uh, you can, like, feel it. You can feel it in your body watching, even on TV. And certainly, if you're there in person. I mean, you're, you're telling me, Canucks fans, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be uh, itching to take that trip down to Vegas to watch the Canucks Vegas playing game in three weeks. Like it would be amazing. Yeah. It'd be incredible. I think there would, uh, I think there would be a, a mild amount of interest in that one. Uh, this one a says mild amount. Yeah, yeah. Th- another one saying there would be no point in the regular season. If you had a play in tournament, I strongly disagree again. First of all, you still have to finish in the top 10. And second of all, it creates so much more incentive for you as a franchise to have a higher bar than just eighth place, right? It really, really forces you to try to climb up the standing. So, in fact, I think it makes the regular season more meaningful in a lot of ways. Not for Again, not for the seventh and eighth teams, and I understand that, but it still gives teams all up and down the standings other things to shoot for, right, and other things to prioritize. And I think that keeps 
the sense of meaning, the sense of real stakes going uh, for longer. And then this one uh, came in from Snoop the Dog. I think the play-in key would be to keep the series short enough to keep the top seeds from being cold from too, ma- too many nights off. Just keep the gap under a week. And I think, <laughs> I think that's a fair point as well. And then <laughs> I might want to end on this one that says, uh, let's, yep. ju- let's just implement a rule where the Canucks always get into the playoffs. <laughs> There you go. We're thinking outside the box now. We're really getting blue sky thinking from a Vancouver perspective. I love it. <laughs> would you would you trade that rule being implemented for a rule in which the Leafs never make it out of the first round? Or is that Oof. rule inessential because it already I was going to say, exists? do you even need to? That That's just kind of the uh, de facto rule already without being the de jure rule. So why do we even need to go there? Uh, okay. Well, that was fun. That was a good discussion at the end. Thanks for everyone texting in. Uh, you can always text into the show 650-650. We will be back tomorrow on another Canucks game day. They'll take on the Arizona Coyotes. The People Show with Bick Nazar and Randy Janda is up next. It's the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.